0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to AccessibleWorld.org. The date is Tuesday, July 27, 2010. And we're in the auditorium doing one of our special program series programs. Our host tonight is Ed Cooney, so you know uh, it's going to be a scholarly effort. On Tuesday night, July twenty seventh. Ed Cooney will continue with part two of his trip through America's past. Back in May, Mr. Cooney suggested that nations, just like people, are conceived, go through infancy, child, childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, mature adulthood, and perhaps even old age. So, where was America between 1845 and 1860? That era when America slid into civil strife. Your questions and comments are not only welcome, we need them. And without further ado, it's my great privilege and honor to introduce my friend, Ed Cooney. And I'll be unlocking this. And you should be uh, have an open mic now, Ed.
1: Thank you, Bob. Thank you, everybody. Nice to have so many of you here. You're scaring me to death, but other than that, it's, uh, Still is an honor, really is. Uh, <laughs> i kind of reminded of the speaker who um, finished a presentation one night, and and uh, he was kind of wondering how. I mean, the audience, the pl- the applause had been had gone very well, but he was you know, really interested to know uh, what people really thought, and he overheard. <coughs> Mother asked her son, Well, you know, what what did you think of that presentation? And he said, Well, it was a good presentation. He could have done a lot worse if he'd had a little more time. Well, we got about an hour, and I'll try to get all of this in an hour. It's, uh, you never know exactly how long it takes to present what. But uh, I'm going to leave it to you uh, when we're done for you to decide whether. America was in its infancy, whether it was in its childhood, or exactly where it was by the time this 15-year period of 1845 to 1860 ended. I need to tell you that I learned a lot. I really did. Um, I figured I knew the era pretty well. And uh, some ideas that I had about the era and and the presidents and so forth involved uh, uh, were were somewhat changed and we can go into that. Uh, Five men would serve as president of the United States between March the 4th, 1845 and New Year's Day, 1960 and we're going to stop there because first of all we have to stop somewhere and there's just so much here that we need to go over. And I'm going to look at things over the shoulders of these five presidents. Now four of these presidents are considered some of the worst presidents we ever had. And as I did my research I found reasons for that. Some were good reasons and some, well, some I suppose were character flaws more than they were reasons. On Tuesday, March the 4th of 1845, a gentleman who most Americans had never heard of, even though they just elected him President of the United States, was taking the oath of office. His name was James Knox Polk. He'd been in politics since 1823. He'd served in his state legislature for two years. He'd gone up and he'd been elected to the House of Representatives in 1824. He served seven terms in the House. He even was Speaker of the House between 1835 and 1839, and then he went back home. Then he went back home to run for governor, and he'd never been heard from again uh, nationally. Not that that many people knew him to begin with. Very plain man, short, sturdily built born in Mecklenburg, North Carolina. When he was about 10 years old, he moved from Mecklenburg, North Carolina to South Tennessee, to right around Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And it was there that he studied for the law, there where he met his bride. Um, In fact, when he was about 17 years old, he was always in poor health, and this was a rugged part of the country to live in. Uh, He was always in poor health, never could keep up with the other boys. And when he was about 17, he suffered from a severe case of gallstones. And so they had to send him away to Danville, Kentucky, where a Dr. Ephraim McDowell, who earlier had done the very first, sorry ladies, I hope I get this right, ovaryotomy, And that was even before the value of sterilization was known, but he had done the first uh, um, successful ovaryotomy, and now he was going to remove young Jimmy Polk's gallstones. And they didn't have anesthetic. They had only liquor. But he got through it, and it was much better when he got home. As I say, um, life in central Tennessee was not an easy one. He was admitted to the bar in 1820 and on January the 1st, 1824, he married the love of his life, Sarah Childress, at the home of the bride. And, of course, they would be close forever. Uh, When he got home to Tennessee in 1839, he ran for governor won the office was defeated in 1841 he ran for governor in 1843 and he was defeated again not exactly a good president good presidential timber as we would measure presidential timber today but the democratic party got locked up in 1844 um The leading candidate was former President Martin Van Buren who had served in Andrew Jackson's administration first as Secretary of State and then as Vice President. He was a brilliant politician and Jackson liked him. But Martin Van Buren waffled on the question as to whether or not Texas should be annexed to the United States. Texas had won her independence from Mexico and 1836 was kind of ready to join the union and of course especially southerners were anxious to have her Uh, even the incumbent president John Tyler was, was ready to have her so but Martin Van Buren wasn't now back from the time the democratic party was founded in the 1830s until 1936 as a matter of fact it took two thirds of the delegates to nominate a candidate for president and so therefore when the nomination got locked up it was not going to be easy to unlock it but eventually the voting went along and suddenly the name James Knox Polk appeared and on the ninth ballot Polk was nominated. In fact, so obscure was Polk that when Samuel Morris's new invention, the telegraph, sent the news to Washington, D.C. from Baltimore, where the invention was taking place, people didn't believe it. They thought they, they, they thought the they thought the thing didn't work. James Who? It's kind of like I remember back in nineteen sixty eight when when the Republican Party nominated Spiro Agnew for Vice President of the United States and people went around saying, Spiro who? I don't think people other than Greek Americans really knew anybody named Spiro. Certainly I didn't, but uh, Spiro who was what you heard. And of course in 1976, all of you will remember Jimmy who? And I suppose they said Jimmy who in the case of Polk. But he won the election. And he defeated, he defeated a candidate who was nationally known, Henry Clay. Henry Clay had been around since, well, of course, he'd been, he was the youngest Speaker of the House ever. He'd been around for a long time. He'd been a presidential candidate in 1824, and 1832, and 1840. And finally, he thought he really had his chance in 1844. And the ironic part about that was that he defeated Jimmy Polk in his home state. He won Kentucky, he won Tennessee, but he was a slave owner, and, well, people in the North didn't quite trust him, and there was the Liberty Party candidate, a gentleman by the name of James Burney, who took just enough votes away from Clay in, in Michigan and in New York to give the election to our Jimmy Polk. Polk won Actually, I've lost my place here. Sorry about that. Um, Polk, as soon as I find it here, we'll have it. Um, He won 1,337,243, 50% of the vote. Clay won 1,299,068, and that was 48% of the vote. Of the vote, and James G. Burney won 63,200 votes, 2% of the vote, just enough to take it away from one of the greatest United States senators and greatest political minds in America. And that might have mattered to events that have later that later occurred. So, what was the national mood as? James Knox Polk, and as George Mifflin Dallas took office that Tuesday, March the 4th, 1845. By the way, if somebody wants to ask me about George Mifflin Dallas, there's a rather fascinating thing that I'll answer if it, if it comes up in the, in the question and answer session. It, it's, you know, it's interesting, but it's not calamitous. The national mood was for expansion. And the person who gave the message, who gave the word, was John O'Sullivan, who was the editor of a of a um, of a magazine called the U.S. Magazine, a Democratic Review. And he defined his call for expansion as manifest destiny. It was our destiny to overspread the continent, alloweded by Providence, for the free v- development of our yearly multiplying millions. That guy's more wordy than I am. You know, anytime I write one of my columns, my my best friend and editor always tells me that I'm really wordy. Jonah Sullivan, in fact, most writers of the 19th century are more wordy than I am. So that was the move. But could it happen? And how would it happen if it was to happen? And of course, the major issue was... If there was expansion, westward expansion, could the slave states advance as well as along with the uh, free states? Free states didn't want to see the advancement of slavery and they became suspicious of Jim Polk. Jim Polk was a little fellow with big ambitions, it was said. And he's rated by many scholars as a near great because he had four goals. And he real, he realized all of them in one term. First, there was a settlement of the Oregon boundary with Great Britain. We'd begun to settle into that territory. We wanted, or the British wanted, I think, wanted the boundary to be at 42 degrees parallel, north latitude. We said fifty four forty or fight. We finally settled with Great Britain at the forty-ninth parallel and out of that territory would become Washington and Oregon. Another goal (coughs) of President Polk was to lower the tariff, the high protective tariff. Uh, Protective tariffs helped the industrialized North. They had a tendency to impinge the agrarian South because if the tariffs were too high why then Europe would put tariffs on farming goods that were sent from the south to Europe so it would hurt the market for cotton and tobacco and rice and all the things that southerners uh, wanted so there was a lower protective tariff and it was called the Walker Tariff and that's directly connected with if somebody asks me uh, the story I'll tell about George Nifflin Dallas This third goal was the establishment of an independent treasury. Now, I've got to confess something about that. I I, I don't know what an independent treasury is. I've looked it up. I still can't find out what... I mean, it seemed to me that Alexander Hamilton was independent enough. And I know that it has to do with banking and and credit and the system. We now have the Federal Reserve System. But what exactly an independent treasury is is something I'm just not sure what it is the fourth goal was of course the annexation of Texas and when President Polk made it known that he would annex Texas the Mexicans broke diplomatic relations office. He sent John Sladell, a New Orleans lawyer down to Mexico to try to negotiate the purchase of everything that we wanted for 30 million dollars and the Mexicans weren't having any. So Early in eighteen forty six, President Polk sent Zachary Taylor into the Southwest. Since we had Texas and the Mexicans knew better than try to get that back, they said the border with Mexico was at the Nueces River. And we insisted that the border with Mexico was the Rio Grande. And so we sent Zachary Taylor into the area with troops and on April the 26th of 1846 the Mexicans attacked and on May the 11th President Polk asked Congress for a declaration of war with Mexico we were willing to settle with Great Britain but we were not willing to settle with Mexico and I, along with many, many other people, wonder if that isn't really at the excuse me really at the center of our problems today. If there isn't some residue left over from that, but there would be war with Mexico. The House would vote for a declaration of war 174 to 14, and the Senate would vote a declaration of war by a vote of 40 to 2. The war would last from May 13th, 1846 to February the 2nd of 1848 when it would be um, ended by the Treaty of, Hidalgo, or, I'm sorry, of Guadalupe, Hidalgo, Guadalupe Hidalgo. In war dead, we would pay a price of thirteen thousand two hundred eighty three and instead of spending thirty million dollars for the whole kit and caboodle we would pay eventually Mexico for um, about fifteen million dollars for everything we won our war gains included Texas Mexico Arizona California Nevada Utah, Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado. Mexico would lose about two-thirds of its size. And all we would be out would be $15 million. In a way. But in another way, we were going to be out a lot more. Because it meant expansion. Now, when Polk went to war in spring of 1846, he had Democrats in both the House and the Senate. But that fall, the public sent a Did I say Whigs? I should have said Democrats in both the House and the Senate. That fall, the House sent a bunch of Whigs into office. And the Whigs were very, very skeptic, skeptical, of course. They were Northerners. They were industrialists. They were suspicious of the agrarian South. But Still at all, they began to ask questions. And they decided that it would be immoral to continue the advancement of slavery. And so a congressman from Pennsylvania by the name of David Wilmot proposed an amendment or a bill in the House of Representatives saying that there could be no slavery in any of the territory captured by us during the Mexican War. The President didn't understand it. He was absolutely perplexed. After all, haven't we gotten Oregon? Free states out of that, aren't there going to be? So, there might be some slave states. What's the big deal? And he just didn't get it. The Wilmot Proviso would be defeated, be passed in House in 1847 and again in 1848, but both times it would fail in the Senate. President Polk, who was not an easy man to get along with, was absolutely flabbergasted. He was not a happy man. Uh, Incidentally, during the war, he he quarreled with both Scott, Winfield Scott, and Zachary Taylor, the generals he sent down there. He quarreled with the man he he sent down there to to, um, negotiate the peace. Actually, he wanted more of Mexico in the long run than he was than he'd really he'd, he'd, he'd originally bargained for. And some people suspect that Jim Polk really wanted to make more room than appeared for more slave states. Jim Polk, in his exasperation, said. Of course, I'm not running for re-election. I said four years ago I wouldn't run for re-election, but I don't think that any president will ever win a second term because we're learning to divide ourselves. And so, his one term came to an end. How was he evaluating? We have two evaluations of Polk, both by future presidents. One president said... James K. Polk was a great president. He said what he intended to do and did it. Now, just by that language, those of you who've heard him know, that just has to be Harry Truman. He said it in 1962. James K. Polk was a great president, said what he intended to do, and he did it. Another future president had something to say, and this is what he said. I more than suspect that he, meaning Polk, is deeply conscious of being in the wrong. That he feels the blood of this war, like the blood of Abel, is crying to the heavens against him. He is a bewildered, confounded, and miserably miserably perplexed man. That's what Abraham Lincoln said about James K. Polk. The war was wrong. It was started for the wrong reason. It was a stronger country against a weaker country. It wasn't right. My assessment of Polk, he was hardworking. He was an able administrator. He was an introvert, focused on his goals but he had, had a tendency to be rather narrow when it came to his ability to judge the consequences of his actions. He was 49 years old when he was elected president in 1844. He was born uh, on November the 2nd of 1795, and so he turned 49 just before he was elected. Served one term. He was 53 years old when he left office on March the 4th, 1849. And by the way, there's a story about that, too. So if anybody wants me to ask, or wants to ask me about what happened when Polk left office, I'd be happy to tell him. It's a hell of a story. Anyway, um, he left office on the 4th of March and he lived for three months. He'd bought a new home from former Senator Felix Grundy in Tennessee, which he named Polk Place. He didn't go straight home, he went down the east coast and across the south through into Louisiana and back up to his home in Tennessee. And whether he caught cholera or whether he caught or what happened, nobody knows. I've even read read that uh, he was suffering from cancer of the bowel. But he died. On June the fifteenth. 1849. He was only 53. Okay, I admit this has nothing to do with anything, but I like it, and I'm going to tell you about it. As I say, Jim Polk didn't have many friends. Um, But he loved politics. He wasn't a great speaker. He wasn't very charming. But he had the best friend in his life was Sarah Childress Polk. And the last thing he said was, Sarah... I love you. Eternally, I love you. Now Sarah Polk lived for another 42 years. So you can be sure, she was always sustained by it. Zachary Taylor was not a politician. Zachary Taylor was an Indian fighter. Born to a wealthy planter in Virginia, on November the 24th of 1874, uh, he moved to Kentucky as a young man. He married his sweet, his sweetheart, um, Margaret Peggy McCall Smith Taylor, of course, on June the 21st of 1810 in Louisville, Kentucky. He would spend most of his time on the road as an army officer. And he would steadily rise. By the way, their daughter, Sarah Knox, you notice the similarity? Sarah Knox, it's almost like Sarah Knox Polk, because remember Jim Polk, but her name was Sarah Knox Taylor. And she married in 1834, 1835, she married Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis was also an officer. He was the one that would be Polk's, or would be uh, Pierce's Secretary of War, and eventually he would be President of the Confederacy. She would marry him in May. They would move to his plantation in Mississippi. They would visit friends in New Orleans. And they would both come down with malaria. Davis recovered. She didn't. After a lifetime in service, as I've already told you, Zachary Taylor was sent to Mexico to protect our interests there. And victories at Palo Alto, Mexico, on May the 8th of 1846. Um, I'll never get this name right. Rusca de la Palma, on May the 9th of 1846 and then later at Monterey, in September 1846, would make him a hero. He did something out of the ordinary when he faced the forces of General Pedro de Amputia in September of 1846 at Monterey. After three days of heavy fighting, he made a gentleman's agreement to let them get away. He said, give me the city, give me Monterey, and you can get away. You can take your sidearms with you, and you can take your artillery piece with 21 rounds of ammunition, and I won't chase you for six weeks. Go. President Polk was not happy about that at all. But, Taylor said, we're a stronger nation. We can afford to be magnanimous. And so... off went Diempuda. At Buena Vista in February of 1847 he came across a customer whose name I'll bet you know. General Antonio Lopez de Santana. De Santana. De De Santiana, I'm sorry. Santa Ana. (laughs) I knew I'd screw up that name. Antonio Lopez de Santana, and he did the same thing to Taylor that he did at the Alamo. Um, Something like 12 years, well, 11 years before, he he had superior numbers, and he told Taylor, he said, "You either surrender, or we'll slaughter you." Taylor said, "Uh "Uh-uh," and Taylor beat him. He had superior firepower. He lost about 600. He had about 4,600 altogether because when Polk was angry at him he took most of his troops and gave them to um, Winfield Scott whom he really didn't much like better than Polk uh, much better than uh, Taylor because he suspected they were both Whigs and might threaten his beloved Democratic Party. But he won, defeated Santa Ana at Buena Vista and he was a hero. When he came back to the United States, the war was over. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed. People were saying to Zack Taylor, you have a chance to be President of the United States. Somebody said that to him one night and he said, shut up and drink your whiskey. But the predictor was right. He had a chance to be president of the United States. He would be nominated by the Whig Party in 1848. Um, he would be nominated on a, yeah, I'm quite yeah, the, the first ballot. No, no, I'm sorry, on the, on the fourth ballot. He didn't have any serious challenges, and of course, the Whig Party didn't need two thirds of its delegates to nominate his candidate, so they nominated Pierce. Or they nominated um, Taylor and again as I say he was not a politician in fact because he was so popular he stopped paying for letters that that were sent to him without without um, um, postage on them he told this he told the uh, and he told, the, he told the post office to send those letters back. And one of those letters was the letter from the chairman of the Whig party telling him that he'd been nominated for president. So "Send sent the letter back. And fortunately for them, they realized it in time and paid postage and sent it to him, and he accepted the nomination. On election day 1848, Zachary Taylor, the Whig, would win 1,360,101 votes. That's 47% of the vote. Louis Cass, the Democratic candidate, would win $1,220,544. i am sure all of you are remembering these figures. 43% of the vote. And Martin Van Buren, remember the former president, Martin Van Buren, the man who was denied uh, nomination by the Democratic Party in 1844? Well, this time he ran on what was called the Free Soil Party, the anti-slavery wing of the Democratic Party. He got 291,263, or 10 percent of the vote. The electoral vote went to Taylor. 163 cast, got 127. So it was pretty close in the electoral vote. So Taylor was president. As I said to you, probably said it too many times, but Taylor was a was not a politician. Now Taylor was a slave owner, but he shocked all those people in the South. Those there were two branches in the Whig Party. The Southern Whigs were called Cotton Whigs and the Northern Whigs were called Conscious Whigs. And um, they split. The Cotton Whigs felt betrayed. Many Southern Democrats who had voted for Taylor as a slave owner felt betrayed. In fact, two Congressmen Robert Toombs of Georgia and Alexander Stevens of Georgia, who would later serve as Vice President of the Confederate States of America, went to Taylor and they said, we need to expand, we need to have you support this proposed compromise. There was a bill coming up in the Senate for the admission of California and some of the other territories into the Union. And Taylor had made it known, even though he was a slaveholder, he did not, he would not sign that bill. That bill comes to my desk, I'm going to veto it. I think it's wrong. Yeah, we own slaves, but we can't continue to profit from immorality, as he saw it. So he told him. So Toomes and Stevens (laughs) went to the White House and told Taylor that if he continued to push them the south was going to secede and in very non-presidential language he said look if you attempt to secede I personally will lead an army to enforce the law and hang any traitors I catch with as little compunction as I hung spies and traitors in Mexico and that includes you now, I don't know how many times congressmen have been talked to by presidents like that but not many now Vice President Fillmore in June of 1850 they remember they took office in March of 1849 in 1850 in June Millard Fillmore who was feeling a bit alone he was Vice President of the United States but he didn't have any say in the Taylor administration but he went to the President, he told him that uh, if the uh, California bill came up, and if it was tied in the Senate, he'd he'd vote for it. And the record doesn't tell us what President Taylor told him. But the time was coming, it was going to be dear for Zachary Taylor. On July the 4th, he went to Ceremonies marking the cornerstone of the Washington Monument. He sat there listened to two hours of speeches. He was very hot, he was very hungry, and he ate, you know, I've heard it was cherry ice milk, and he ate vegetables. And You could get sick from that. What with, uh, sometimes the, some people said that the, the water table around Washington wasn't always good, and, 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 and vegetables could be poisoned, or, and, or dairy products could be poisoned by that. Zachary Taylor was dead within five days of gastritis. So, what did people say about Zachary Taylor? Zachary Taylor praised. It said, the person who praised him said, in death, his death was a public calamity. No man can be more devoted to the Union or more opposed to the slavery agitation. That was Thomas Hart Benton, a very distinguished United States Senator of his day. As for criticism of Zachary Taylor, he really is a very simple-minded old man. He has the least show or pretense about it Of any man I ever saw. He talks as as artlessly as a child about affairs of state. He does not seem to pretend to a knowledge of anything of which he is ignorant. He's really a remarkable man in some respects. But it is remarkable that such a man should be President of the United States. That was the judgment of editor, educator, Horace Mann. My assessment, Mann's probably right. Basically right. He probably wasn't really qualified to be President of the United States of America. But my assessment is that except... For his decency and his persistence. He probably wasn't qualified. But because he was so decent and because he was so persistent, he was qual- enough, qualified enough for the times, as far as I'm concerned. Millard Fillmore, Millard Fillmore, in many ways, was a remarkable man. He really was. He just somehow couldn't put it all together in national office in national office I guess he was vice president of the United States he'd once been a very close friend of William Henry Seward who was uh, United States senator at that time and would become Secretary of State in Lincoln's administration Fillmore had been to the White House on Tuesday the 9th of July 1815, visited the President, he saw how ill he was and he was pretty sure that he would succeed him within hours. Went back to his room at the hotel and about 11 o'clock he got word that Taylor was dead. Of course he couldn't sleep that night, he sat up writing a letter to his wife Abigail who was back in Buffalo. They took the oath of office before a joint session of the Congress on Wednesday the 10th of July. The country was a lot different than it had been. Originally, in 1790, there had only been 3,929,214 people in 13 states. And now there were 23,191,876 in 1850 there were 30 states and the South as usual wanted to expand and maintain its voting advantage um, 42 percent of the electorate was supported by the South they had more states than the North did 1514 there must have been um, my, my counting is a little off, I'm 30. It could be 31, it could be 29. Some of the great leaders of the past, such as John C. Calhoun, were dead. Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, the great compromisers, who were behind this big bill to bring California into the Union, would soon go to their graves and Millard Fillmore... would sign the California Compromise. There was another leader that was coming in to his own. His name was Stephen Douglas. He was only 37 years old at the time, a little bit of a fella from Illinois. They called him the Little Giant. Great legislature. They said there were only two things he liked to do. He liked to drink and he liked to work. And both would kill him by the time he was 48 years old. But in 1850, he was a pretty active guy. And he wanted to put together this California Compromise. So he took this big bill consisting of five parts and he divided it up into little parts and he got the support that he needed to pass it in the Senate. And between September the 9th and September the 20th of 1850, Millard Fillmore would sign the California Compromise into law in five parts. And this is what it did. And I'm going to read it slightly out of order and you'll see why first California would be admitted as a free state and the residents of other states created from the treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo could decide for themselves whether they be free or slave states that was provision one provision two the borders of next of, of Texas would be defined and Texas would receive 10 million dollars in to enable her to pay off her debt. She'd been quarreling with New Mexico over territory and she was constantly threatening to invade New Mexico. And um, that was another thing that didn't make Zachary Taylor very happy. He was going to handle that too. Um, And of course, I, I think I've already said it, but the state of New Mexico's borders would be established. The third part of the California compromise was that the territory of Utah would be allowed to come into the Union, run by Brigham Young, of course. Fourth, the slave trade, although not slavery itself, would be banned in Washington, D.C. And the fifth, Although it was not heavily debated at the time, it turned out to be the most controversial part of the compromise of 1850. It was the Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, the government would pay uh, the costs for deciding the cases of runaway slaves. um uh, the in fact if a defendant were found guilty found to be a runaway slave the judge would receive more than if they would receive twice as much as he would if the defendant were found to be innocent so you can automatically see how far that would go Suspected fugitive slaves were denied the right of habeas corpus. They were denied the right to a trial. They couldn't even defend themselves in a judicial proceeding. It was pretty hard to prove that you weren't a runaway slave once they tapped you on the shoulder. And this started a firestorm among the abolitionists in Boston. The, you know, the William Lloyd Garrisons and the William Colin Bryants and the Theodore Parkers and and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and and a whole bunch of other people, they were not happy at all, and they hid slaves, and they sent them to Canada, and they sent them to England. Same thing happened in Syracuse, New York. And in Christiana, Pennsylvania, and in Christiana, Pennsylvania, a Quaker town, some of the slaves actually fired on federal troops, and of course, President Fillmore sent in the Marines. And some people, he went so far as to charge some people with treason. never quite understood it. Fillmore wasn't a stupid man, and he he wasn't an immoral man. But he was certainly out to lunch on that. He of course received kudos in the South for enforcing the Fugitive Slave Law and Whigs in the North weren't happy with him. But he saw it as the law of the land and it was the first responsibility of a president to enforce the law of the land. After all, we're a government of laws, not of men, right? Something to think about. When he left office, it was said of him favorably when he had carefully examined a question and had satisfied himself that he was right. No power on earth could induce him to swerve from what he believed to be the line of duty. That that was said by his Interior Secretary Alexander H.H. H. Stewart. I'm sure all of you have heard of him. Except me. I didn't hear about him until I read about him. miller were criticized it will always be regretted that such a man as Millard Fillmore had not a mind um, a mind comprehensive enough to properly, properly meet a great crisis. It was moreover It was, moreover, his misfortune to see in slavery a political and not a moral question. Upon this one issue, which, true, is one of transcendent importance, he was a politician and not a statesman. That was said by the New York Times on the occasion of his march eighth, seventeen eighty four, his seventeen seventy four death. My assessment of Fillmore, Millard Fillmore possessed a ton of logic, and perhaps a pound of sensitivity on the most important issue of his time. Even his beloved teacher wife, you know, he 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 learned how to read and write. His wife taught him how to read and write. Abigail Powers Fillmore warned him not to sign the California Compromise. He went ahead and did it anyway because of the Fugitive Slave Law. He was an he was an excellent civics leader. Uh, But he had a tendency to be vulnerable to uh, narrow prejudices. And yet, he could be very humble. And even reject an offer from um, Oxford University in Great Britain when he visited there in in the uh, mid-1750s. He wouldn't accept an honorary degree from him. He said he, he couldn't read it, and if he couldn't read it, he couldn't accept it. And by the way, Queen Victoria thought he was one of the most handsome men she ever met. His use of treason charges, his, u- his use of marines against poor blacks, against the pacifists of Christiana, Pennsylvania, are just absolutely incredible. And so, he wasn't nominated in 1852 by the Whigs. He was gone. In 1852, the Whigs nominated the other hero, Winfield Scott, and the Democrats nominated a gentleman by the name of Franklin Pierce. Franklin Pierce grew up amidst politics. His father was twice elected governor of the state of New Hampshire, He was born on the 23rd of November, in 1804, uh, in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. He was devastatingly handsome. He would make the top ten of handsomest presidents ever, Harding, Kennedy, FDR, Reagan, and others. Exceedingly handsome man. Uh, you know, like like most presidents, he came up, you know, through his state. Um, he was elected uh, to the United States Senate in uh, 1830, 1837. Before that, he was in the House of Representatives. He served on uh, the... Uh, um, he also served on, the, on, the, on, the, on the, the Senate. He served on the Senate Judiciary Committee. He would be elected in 1852. The Democrats were going to come together. That's all there was to it. They weren't going to have any more Whigs in the White House, so they came together and they, they nominated Pierce. He wasn't nominated until the, 20, until the 49th ballot, because again, remember, it took two-thirds of the convention to nominate him. Um, I want to take just a few minutes to give you an um, overview of some of the issues that were that were prevalent. Uh, oh wait! Before I do that, I just thought I, I found the popular vote. Uh, Pierce won 51 percent of the vote, and Scott uh, ran uh, won or 40% of the vote. Um, The electoral vote was Pierce 254, Scott 42, so he really had a mandate going into the White House. Uh, I want to talk about some of the political divisions for just a minute. There was the industrial north versus the agrarian south, and of course, slavery versus free labor high-tariffs versus low-tariffs. The question was, was free labor really free? Was it really more moral than slave labor? Most of us, of course, would say so. Slave owners who, up until roughly 1840, would say, well, yeah, we know that we know that slavery is wrong, but, gee, what can we do about it? I mean, We'd like to do something about it. Increasingly became defensive as they began to be attacked by the North. They got defensive. And they argued that they took care of their workers. And they said the industrialists of the North would hire women and poor women and men and people, you know, immigrants coming from abroad and and pay them peanuts. And if the bank closed on them or something, they'd let them go. They said, We we take care of our labours we take care of our laborers for a lifetime.
2: You know, I never thought
1: of that until I read this. I don't buy it entirely. Furthermore, they had some biblical justification. I found at least two passages in the Bible that suggest that maybe slavery isn't as immoral as we think it is. And no, I'm not trying to convince, I'm not trying to convert anybody. Please don't misunderstand me. But Timothy chapter 6 verses 1 says, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider to their masters full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Suggests that maybe slave owners should do respect doesn't distinction between the slavery of the ancient world and you know Rome and Greece and chattel slavery we go to Romans chapter 6 verses verse 19 I put it in human terms I put it in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves just as you use to offer the parts of your body to slavery and to ever wickedness so also now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness okay southerners were not ready to surrender to the idea that they were somehow subhuman And that's the kind of a world that Franklin Pierce stepped into in March of 1853 when he became President of the United States. Now, he was fully committed to the South. He was a Jacksonian Democrat, and even though he was from New Hampshire, he believed that property rights were sanctum. They were important. They were more important than that they were fundamental. Um, I'm aware that we're getting close to time here, but I've got two more president, or I've got him, i got one other president to go, so I need to get through this. So, but I did want to mention that that um, there was a tragedy that happened to Frank Pierce, Handsome Frank, and his wife Jane in between the election and the inauguration. And if somebody wants to ask me about it during the the um, Question and answer, time. I'll be happy to answer it, and and it had to make some difference in his judgment. But, now I want to introduce you to four of the most powerful men in Washington. I've already introduced you to Stephen A. Douglas. Stephen A. Douglas wanted to build a railroad. You know, he he was a Chicago man, an Illinois man. He wanted to build a railroad across the country. The South would like to have built a railroad from New Orleans to San Diego, But um, he wanted to build this railroad. And so he went to these four powerful men. They were called the F Street Mess. They all lived at the same dwelling dwelling on F Street. There was James M. Mason, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Robert N. T. Hunter. They were senators from Virginia. There was Andrew P. Butler, head of the Judiciary Committee, and he was the um, uh, chairman of the Judiciary Committee. He's from South Carolina. And there was David Rice Atchison, and that's another. He's connected to what I wanted to tell you about. Um, when Zachary Taylor became president, he was in a very unique position here. And as I say, it's a heck of a story. These were four very powerful men, and they went to. They went to. Um, they. They went to. Douglas and they say, okay, you can have your railroad if you can get us, if you can find a way to override the Compromise of 1820. And the Compromise of 1820 said that there could be no slaves, no slavery north of 3630. 36 degrees, 30 minutes north latitude. In order to get his railroad between Chicago and um San Francisco, he'd have to go through Kansas, and Kansas was in that free area. Unless you can find a way to get that for us, you won't get our support. Well, he and Jefferson Davis and the whole bunch of them marched over to the White House on Sunday, the 22nd of January, 1854, and Pierce, for the reason that I'll tell you when you ask me about it, didn't like to work on Sunday. But they marched over anyway, and they told him about it. They said, You've got you've got to pass this Nebraska bill so that we can find a way. For Douglas, it was a question of popular sovereignty. The people of Nebraska or the people of Nebraska would of course be it was so far north it was not going to be an issue. But the people of Kansas could decide to have slavery or not have slavery as far as he was concerned. But the bill divided the hell out of the Democratic Party and out of the Northern Whigs. The politicians began walking out in droves because they knew there was no way the Northern industrialists would settle for this. They got the bill through, something like 115 to 104 in the House, and they got it through in the Senate. Um, And I'm suddenly having a brain cramp. I can't can't remember the final vote, but it was close. And the Kansas-Nebraska Act was passed by May of 1854. And it would destroy the Whig Party. And it would create the Republican Party and by the elections of the fall of 1854 they retained the Senate in fact the Democratic Party picked up votes in the Senate they went from like 37 to 42 votes but they lost big time in the House something like 120 to 70 of new Republicans and and Northern Democrats who broke away and many of the people who voted for the Nebraska Bill lost their seats in fact most of them did And of course, Pierce was left with bleeding Kansas. Ruffians from New Jersey, are from uh, New Jersey, ruffians from Missouri would uh, go over into Kansas to vote during election time and, of course, go back home. They weren't legal residents of Kansas. And there was um, a company out of um, Massachusetts called the New England Emigration company that paid people to move in and become residents of, of Kansas so they could vote. Between the spring of 1855 and, 18, and fall of 1856, President Pierce would send three governors into Kansas to try to, to try to straighten things out. All of them went in with the original idea that it was the Yankees who were causing all, out of all the trouble and it turned when they came out of it, all three of them. Andrew Reeder, um, Wilson Shannon, and John Gary, who, by the way, was the first mayor of San Francisco, Gary Street in San Francisco is named after him, a great big guy. He was tough enough to settle things in California when it was open to, you know, all of the thievery and stuff that went on during the gold rush, <clears throat> but he couldn't handle Kansas. And Pierce wasn't helping him. Pierce had his ear. Glued to the F Street mess. And so he wasn't renominated by the Democratic Party in 1856. Praise, it was said of Pierce, that he has within him many of the chief elements of a great ruler. That he has his talents are administrative. He has a subtle faculty for making affairs roll onward according to his will and of influencing their course without showing any tracing, any trace of action on his part. There are scores of men in the country that seem brighter than he is. But he has the directing mind and will make and will move them about like pawns on a chessboard and turn all their abilities to better purposes than they themselves could do. That was said about Franklin Pierce by Nathaniel Hawthorne, the great writer. Pierce was a small politician of low capacity and mean surroundings. Proud to act as a servile tool of men, worse than himself, but also stronger and abler. He was ever ready to do any work the slavery leaders set him. That was the assessment of Theodore Roosevelt, of Pierce. My assessment, it's hard to argue with Teddy. I think Pierce's ambition clearly outweighed his ability If it was legal, it was right. If it was manifest destiny, it had to be right. And um, he was blinded by his own set of tragedies, and those tragedies made him less capable at coping uh, with the office of president than he would have been otherwise. He was less sensitive than otherwise. Finally, we come to the final, uh, to the fifth president we're going to talk about tonight, and in many ways, he was the most qualified. James Buchanan. James Buchanan was born on April the 23rd of 1791, and he would live until June the 1st of 1868 born in Pennsylvania. Uh, He was nominated for president on the 17th ballot of the Democratic Convention of 1856. Um, In the election, he received 1,888,169 45 votes, 45% of the vote. John C. Fremont, the first Republican candidate president received 1,335,264 or 33% of the vote and Millard Fillmore, remember I told you that Millard Fillmore had a tendency to to, uh, lean to the narrow, he always did and he accepted the nomination of the American party, the nativist party, the party that sprung to life in the northeast and some of the big cities, people who resented so many Catholics and Jews and immigrants moving into this country in the late 40s and early 50s into the big cities and they formed an order called the um, the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner called the Know-Nothing Party and there are elements of that thinking today that are involved in our current debate over immigration it's a long-standing thing in this country and Millard Fillmore accepted their nomination although he didn't go out on the stump and say nasty things about Catholics he just accepted their nomination and he got 22% of the vote and 8 electoral votes from the state of Maryland Uh, let's see Buchanan got 174 votes votes John C. Fremont got 114 and of course Millard Fillmore got the 8 okay things were pretty much moving along. They'd gotten pretty much out of control. Passions were high on both sides. And I'm not mentioning things due to time that I don't have to mention, because I'm looking over the shoulders of these presidents and I'm not taking the, the long view, so I haven't given nearly enough attention to things such as John Brown's raid in Pottawatomie and Potawatomi, Kansas, in, in 1856. Nor have I talked in detail about the caning of Senator Charles Sumter by um, Preston Brooks, and also in May of 1856. All connected with the passions over slavery. But there were two things that had to be settled when Buchanan became president. They were Scott versus Sanford, the Dred Scott decision. The Supreme Court finally decided it was going to tackle this issue. Did slaves have the right of citizenship? Could Congress legislate slavery? Uh, Scott had been in... um, the midwest in the upper midwest he was the slave of a surgeon by the name of John Emerson he was in actually what's today Minnesota territory Uh, of course he came back into Missouri which is a slave state and uh, when Emerson died in 1845 he was encouraged by friends in St. Louis to go ahead and sue for his freedom so of course he did And he went to court. St. Louis court upheld his suit. Of course, it was turned down by the Supreme Court, and eventually by the state Supreme Court. And that, there was a gateway to get it into federal court. Now, the Supreme Court could have just let it go. It really could have. Jim Buchanan wanted this thing out of politics. He was a lawyer, and he thought it deserved to be in the courts. And there is even some suggestion that he knew, and that's a no-no, but he knew what the court was going to decide. Because even during I mean, during his inauguration, he said, let's turn it over to the courts, let's follow this, let's end this this issue, let the courts take care of it. And two or three days later, they did. And Chief Justice Roger Taney, who is by now an old man, in fact, um, he'd been a slave owner, he's from... Maryland, of course, he'd he'd freed his own slaves. His own slaves he freed several years ago. But he loved the South, and he thought the South was being picked on, and he wanted to rule on this issue. He decided that Dred Scott was not a citizen. That Dred Scott thus had no standing before the Supreme Court. Second, he decided that Scott was property. He was as much property as he was a horse, as was a horse. And third, he decided that Congress had no power to legislate property. It was not the business of Congress. And therefore, the Dred Scott decision was made. Another firestorm. Um, The South was elated. The um, anti-slavery people, the Bryants and the and the Parkers and the um, the garrisons were up in arms. Stephen A. Douglas insisted that um, all right, Congress can't make us enforce he still supported the idea of popular sovereignty. Meanwhile, there was still bleeding Kansas to, 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 to settle. Um, Buchanan had sent Robert Walker, who uh, the Secretary of, Treasury, Secretary of the Treasury under James K. Polk, a southerner, out to be the new governor of Kansas in, it, in 1757. And again, there was tinkering with the elections. And uh, <clears throat> so Walker complained to President Buchanan, he said, well, there's a problem here, he says, you know, well, we, we really ought to have a referendum on this thing, we can't just let the Constitution be passed by the legislature, and by the way, it was a slave-holding legislator, it was all pro-slave, because they had been rigging the elections, the, 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 the anti-slavery people had not been participating in the elections. and uh, initially Polk backed his new governor and then of course the F Street mess got on him and then he pulled away. He said no uh, we're just going to take the whole thing, the whole state constitution, the pro-slavery constitution and we're going to submit Kansas for statehood. Stephen A. Douglas went to the White House and he told the president he said I'm not going to support you. You'll never get Kansas approved as a free state. The president said to Douglas, he said, look, he says, don't you realize that when you defy the president of the United States, he said, uh, you, you never get your way. And he reminded him of two people who would, um, a senator named Rice and a senator named Talmadge who had defied um, Andrew Jackson. And, and, he, and he said to him, he said, well, Jackson's dead. He said, forget it. He says, you're not going to get it. Well, the Senate did pass the, the Kansas bill. Kansas, if the House passed it, could become a slave state. But on April the 1st of 1858, they lost it in the House 120 to 112. Bleeding Kansas was dead. Of course, Polk, I mean, I'm sorry, Buchanan hung on for another year. Buchanan praised, it was said of him, in the course of a long, useful, and consistent life, filled with the exercise of talents, of a fine, orderly, and uniform ability he had made the constitution of his country the object of his deepest affection. The constitution, the guide of all his public acts. And that was said about him by uh, George uh, George Tickner Curtis. That was, he was his biography. A lawyer, historian, of course, the uh, Polk's biography. Buchanan criticized, and this is, in 1860, the rebels were encouraged by the contempt they felt for the incumbent of the presidency. Mr. Buchanan's policy had, and I think, rendered the collision inevitable. And the continuance of that policy will not only bring it about, but will go far to produce a permanent division of the Union. And that was said of Buchanan by his own postmaster general, Montgomery Blair. My assessment of... Buchanan was that he was mostly a lawyer um, logic was always prevailed over sensitivity over sentiment um, the head must rule the heart and um, If a thought is um, grounded in reason, it prevails. Otherwise, there was chaos. Ah, James Buchanan was logical, and there was chaos. James K. Polk, James K. Polk, was probably the most able of the five presidents we talked about tonight. Zachary Taylor was probably the most resolute. Millard Fillmore was the most willful. Franklin Pierce the most led. James Buchanan the most qualified. Now here's the question for you. If these five men were the worst, or among the worst, who in this time could have been a great president, let alone a good one? Uh, Best to worst? Polk was the best. Taylor next, Fillmore, Pierce, and Buchanan. And you might notice that they... Well, they descended in time. They got worse in time. And that's the truth. Time always reveals the truth. And so it was. And I ask you, what do you say? Thank you, Bob.
2: Good job, Ed. Heard every word.
0: Okay. Thank you. Got the key. Ed, an outstanding job because it was so difficult assessing these five presidents. I'm a Daniel Webster guy myself, but he didn't live long enough. Let's start by asking what tragedy befell, excuse me, the pierces between the election and the inauguration, please.
1: I was just getting the microphone over here, that's all. Um... I want to go back a little bit into their marriage. Um, He was 34 when he married Jane Means Appleton. She was the daughter of the president of Bowdoin College, which he attended. Tiny little lady, sweetheart. um, uh, Had a tendency for depression. They had three children. Franklin Pierce, Jr., who I think was stillborn, and they had Frank Robert Pierce, and he lived to be about four years old. He died. Um, He spent most of the first 10 years of their marriage in Washington and uh, she wanted him to come back and be with her and, 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 and um, live in New Hampshire so he did um, their little boy Benny and remember his father, uh, maybe I didn't mention his father by the way was Benjamin Harrison so this was the grandson Benny he was born in 1842 and he was something of a mama's boy you, you could almost expect it by the circumstances and um, anyway, she didn't like, she didn't want to go to Washington. Jane just didn't want to. And, and uh, she, so anyway, when he was nominated by the Democratic Party, he told her that he didn't want the nomination, but he felt bound to accept the nomination. Um, I've read stories that uh, somebody told her that, that he really did angle to get it, and she wasn't happy about it. And she and little Benny expressed the hope that that you know that uh, he wouldn't be elected but he was on um, January the 6th of 1853 they'd been at a f- funeral for a congressman you know, he was president-elect He went down to Boston for a funeral they were on their way back to um, Concord or where they moved and the car that they were riding in the train they were on a train skipped the tracks and rolled down an embankment or rolled over three or four times Frank and Jane were okay then he was killed and Mrs. Pierce never could get around it just couldn't get it she, she, she couldn't bear to go to Washington you know of course Franklin Pierce had guilt feelings about it too, he thought maybe God was punishing him for being ambitious he began to drink um, of course she wrote long malden uh, not malden <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for uh, maudlin um, letters to little Benny and uh, Sundays remember I mentioned that the the, 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 the peak guys from the uh, street mess came over on Sunday Pierce didn't like to work on Sunday he couldn't think on Sunday well they came over and made their proposition purposely on a Sunday, uh, I can't quite. Sometimes I've been inclined to cut him some slack and say he couldn't help himself, you know, for some of the decisions that he made. But I, I'm not so sure I can go along with that. But still, they they played to his weakness. The death of little Benny. Mrs. Pierce never fully recovered. She died of. Tuberculosis in December of 1853, 63 Excuse me. Um, he was a tragic figure for the rest of
0: his life. Drank quite heavily.
1: Uh, so that's that's the story.
0: Okay. Thank you. Any other questions, please? This is Don. That was a great great talk. Going back to President Polk and the uh, Mexican-American War. Did you say that, that we there were 13,000 Killed on the United States side, and I that didn't that seemed pretty high for the 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 imbalance, or was it illness that killed them? I don't have an exact breakdown of the deaths,
1: Don. Um, You know that could have been some from disease and some from I don't I don't know exactly, but that's the figure I have. I have a list of um, war deaths, and in fact, a couple of times ago when I gave that. When I gave that presentation on um, you know the changing face of war, remember you might remember that I that I have um, statistics that are put out by the um, History Institute of the United States Army and that was the figure that they gave for uh, the um, the Mexican War.
2: You said that uh, Zachary Taylor would not take letters or receive letters that letters were sent back if postage wasn't on them. And I was intrigued by that because I've always uh, learned in history, in, in books I've read, that back in those days, the presidents were really much much more approachable. I would imagine that in being approachable, they were also much more approachable in terms of being written to. And I like the little things that happen in history that are that are just sort of almost personality quirks about a person. And was there much discussion of that at the time? Now, if somebody did something like that, we'd probably remark upon it. But, of course, back then, people were more, uh, even though they did maybe have a chance to be closer to the present, they were, president, they were more separate in many, many ways. Uh, geography, you didn't have as much uh, covered, certainly, and in the ways that you do now. Um, did the... American people know about that, and did they respond much to it, or did they were they even aware of it?
1: Oh, I don't think they were aware of it, Bonnie. Um, you know, I don't even know when the f- story first broke. First place, he wasn't president. He was <clears throat> that was during the campaign. Uh, he was a war hero, and of course, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I yeah. I, I, I the cost of getting a letter might not have been more than one or two cents. In fact, I'd be surprised almost if it was more than a penny or maybe and I don't even know whether they had half pennies back then you know our currency was very very different different back then but um, um, in fact I'm a little ashamed to admit it I, in fact I saw the name the, one of the postmasters general it was either in the Polk administration or it was in the um, um, the Polk administration or it was in the Fillmore administration was the first Postmaster General to General to issue postage stamps, uh, and I think I think actually um, I think um, Buchanan's Postmaster General was the one that started the uh, Pony Express. Although, and again, I, I didn't pay enough attention to that is because I, in the course of the research, I mostly of course focused on the slavery question. But I mean, um uh, you know, I doubt very few people knew about it, and it's it probably just came up. As far as being accessible, you're exactly right. It, in fact, it used to be possible. Well, right up until the New Deal, and, and perhaps um, it, because I know as late as the 1920s, you know, people would come over to the White House and meet President and Mrs. Coolidge on on, on New Year's Day. Uh, I think they also had. Um, uh, In fact, sometimes, for for a lot of years, um, the president would meet the public maybe two or three days a week, sometimes like Tuesday and Friday, and people would come. Of course, back then, you know, there was a lot more patronage that was, you know, connected to the office. So, there was, um, that was it. I mean, so, I hope I've answered your question, but I I think um, the answer is that he wasn't president yet, but... Still, your point is well taken. Okay, another question, please, from
0: anyone?
2: Well, I just wanted to follow up by saying that uh, I would imagine that uh, even though business was always important in relation to politics and getting elected, and I'm sure it was even important back then, I would imagine that business itself was what removed uh, the presidents and, and sort of set them apart from and made them a little bit more separate from the common, ordinary man and woman, plus uh, a, a matter of, um, I guess, uh, just, I don't know what you would call it, uh, civility, uh, maybe a little bit of etiquette, um, um, class structure, I would imagine all of that that separated them eventually.
1: Well, there's also the matter, Bonnie, of security. You know, I mean, it got, you know, along with the Depression, you know, um, you know there's a, I mean, certainly Herbert Hoover couldn't have been in a position to welcome too many people in the the early 30s. I don't pick on him necessarily, but I mean, and I'm sure that um, as time went along, I mean, you know, feelings got intense, and of course, you know, Washington was a little village before World War II and and became a major metropolitan area by by 1945. So, I mean, there was was that change, and of course you couldn't have it you know you can imagine if it was that way today Barack Obama's life expectancy would be five seconds so there is that I mean it's just—I don't think it's—you know—and I don't think it's you know and I don't really think that it's a case that that people are, are less civil you know, I mean I think there are very few people that would harm the president today I certainly hope there would be but uh, it only takes one uh, that's
0: a oh, good point I oh, I forgot my uh, I just, oh yes, what was, do you think that they screened, there was some screening by the way people dressed that there was a lot more class distinction than there is today, that uh, if you weren't really dressed like a middle or upper class person, I don't think you'd got in, if you were working class, I don't think you'd have got in there, I don't know. Depends on the White House, Don, you'd probably get in quite easily if you were one of
1: Andy Jackson's supporters, you know, he probably wouldn't let you in if you were too snappy, you know. (laughs) yeah you know, there was a in fact uh in the early part of the republic uh, there was a the idea is you wanted to look republican and of course back then republican didn't mean you know didn't mean you know didn't mean corporations the way it came to you know to be a republican was to be a was to be a poor man to believe in you know the yeoman farmer and so forth so um, i mean um, uh, Thomas Jefferson used to walk around the white House in his slippers and I even heard that that he'd feed uh, his birds by sticking bird seed in his lips. Um, He was quite a character, really. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I I don't know. I mean, formal, yeah, probably formal affairs, affairs of state. You know, you probably had to be dressed up. But my guess is that you could probably come into the White House pretty easily, you know, because again they had job seekers because you know there's a lot of patronage that went with with the high offices and so forth. So um, you know if a working man wanted to say be the driver for the State Department or somebody in the State Department or wanted to be water boy for the Justice Department or something like that, he had to come see the President.
0: Okay, and I'm gonna ask the final question but you guys could you know before we officially close but certainly you can talk all night if you wish here. This is your room uh, the inauguration of James K Polk you said uh, ask you about that and I'm trying to, I'm ha- racking my brain to think uh, what happened so could you remind us please
1: sure that's why I planted those questions I mentioned the F Street mess and I mentioned uh, the president pro temp of the Senate I want yeah, the yeah, in fact this gives me a, tran- a chance to address two issues when Franklin Pierce was, a nominate, was nominated for President of the United States in 1852, his vice president was William Rufus King of Alabama. Actually, he was originally from North Carolina. He eventually moved to Alabama. And he was a friend of, good friend of... Um, they said he was a good friend. In fact, some people claim that he was James Buchanan's lover. Uh, because you know, Buchanan was a, was a bachelor. And of course, today we have to <coughs> discover that he's, he was gay. Um, but that's, that's an old rumor. But anyway, they, they were bachelors and they were best of friends. But anyway, um, William Rufus King was elected Vice President of the United States under Franklin Pierce in 1852. Um, he was ill with tuberculosis and he went to Cuba to try to recover his health. And he was so weak that when it came time for inauguration day in 1853 he couldn't come to Washington and so he was the only vice president to take the oath of office outside the country on foreign soil he came back to the United States and died in Alabama that April so he never served as vice president of the United States now why is that important why is the connection Back at that time, the presidential line of succession went through the United States Senate, from the vice president to the president pro temp of the Senate. That's the president of the Senate as elected by the Senate. The, um, probably the meanest man in, 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 in this, this this F Street mess that I referred to uh, was David Rice Acheson of, of, uh, of, of Missouri. And um, he... Um, He was President Pro Temp of the Senate, which meant he was in line to become President of the United States if anything happened to Pierce. So, um, anyway, he had been President Pro Temp of the Senate since sometime in the mid-40s. I don't exactly remember when it was. But the Polk administration, its term ran out on Sunday... March the 4th of 1849. Um, Vice President Dallas had left office. Um, Polk, of course, had to leave office. He was done. And David Rice Atchison, who was then President pro temp of the Senate, was technically President of the United States for 24 hours. Uh, the story has it, and I've, it may be apocryphal, but it's it's possible. Um, story has it that um, he uh, was out partying he went and partied hardy pretty late got home and slept the whole day of March the 4th of 1849 of course March 5th was the day Zachary Taylor would not take the oath of office on a Sunday it went against his religion and uh, insisted on taking uh, uh, the the. the the oath of office on Monday, so technically, this David Rice Atchison was President of the United States for a day, and on his tombstone, I'm told, one of the things it says David Rice Atchison, President of the United States, uh, March 4th, March 5th, 1849, okay, that same thing would happen 28 years, and there's a story about that, too, between the uh, election of of, um, of Rutherford B. Hayes and when he took office uh, you, you might remember and certainly all of you are old, old enough to remember that uh, we've had two presidents of course it's been moved from presidential inauguration day has been moved from uh, um, March 4th to January 20th that, that was effective as of 1937 FDR was the first one to take the office on the 20th of January um, but Eisenhower in '57 and um, Reagan in '85, uh, their terms ended on Sunday, and they took the office, oath of office privately. Uh, but then, of course, the inauguration was held on Monday, and the next guy who gets <coughs> the turn to do that will be President Obama if he's reelected. So. The story is about David Rice, about you know, the F Street mess and David Rice Atchison. Um, I'll take just a minute to tell the other story I was going to tell. George Mifflin Dallas. I said that he was important because he was significant. He was, he was Polk's vice president. He was a resident of Philadelphia. You know, those of us who watch Major League Baseball know how nasty Philadelphia fans can get. Remember, I said that one of. Um, President Polk's goal was a lower tariff. It was called the Walker Tariff, Robert Walker. And, uh, of course, it would lower um, tariffs for um, goods that were produced in the North and by some of um, Vice President uh, uh, Dallas's old friends in Philadelphia. And when the, when the tariff came up, he loyally supported the lower tariff that his president insisted on. And the people of Philadelphia went nuts. They really did. They went nuts. You know, they they burned him in effigy. They surrounded his home. They hounded his family. He had to remove his family from Philadelphia. And, of course, eventually he moved to Texas. And Dallas, Texas is named for George Mifflin Dallas. So that was the other story that I thought I'd slip in here.
0: Oh, Ed, this is just so great. We thank you so very much on behalf of our Accessible World special program series. Uh, What can I say? You can just see the the research, the extensive research here, and we thank you. On August 10th, we have right here, same time, same station in the auditorium, Ira Fistel, noted talk show host, will be doing um, a discussion of Huckleberry Finn and his discussions of Mark Twain, and we hope you'll be here All right, we officially end the show, and we thank our recorder, uh, Tim Cummings, for his efforts tonight. Thank you so much.